This is the Ampere Industrial Security Critical Assets Podcast. Each episode, we cover important OT and ICS security topics with an eye towards standards and regulation to keep you ahead of your adversaries and your auditors. Hello, everyone. This is Patrick Miller with the Critical Assets Podcast. With me today, I've got Amanda Frank. Amanda, tell us a little about yourself. Sure. Thank you so much for having me today. So I am a electrical engineer by education. I grew up in the electric utility market. Um, but more recently, I joined a firm called Altruistic about a year and a half ago. And we're a mission-led IP investment and technology firm. And our mission is to really pioneer transformation in the data and AI space. So we do a lot of cutting-edge um, software and data work to help companies optimize, create IP, um, really leverage you know the advanced technology that's now on the market. So absolute nerd um, and can't wait to have this conversation with you today. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. So I'd like to start with um, what I'm seeing, at least in a lot of our industrial world, is we've got a bunch of analog technology that is being replaced with digital technology. Sometimes we're asking for this. Sometimes the vendors just don't make the analog stuff anymore, and your only choice is digital. But <laughs> it, it's kind of trending toward all of the things are going to be digital, and not just the analog things, but even things that weren't even analog technology. We're just inserting like a whole bunch of new stuff in there everywhere. And as we move to this kind of, you know, digitized future uh, for literally everything and a bunch of things that weren't even there now, like new new things, um, it's going to create an enormous amount of data is what I'm seeing. Because all of these things, they don't just do what they did, you know, in their analog state uh, in a digital way. They do it and they also create data and they're connected and, and, and all these other things that could come with uh, the digital kind of, I guess, you know, name or kind of field. When that happens... Uh, we end up with an enormous amount of data. And a lot of companies I, I see, you know, they're they're kind of, maybe some of them are leaning into this, but a lot of them are kind of forced into this. And then suddenly they've got all this data. And of course, it's sold to them as something like, hey, you can get all these operational efficiencies and there's all these great benefits. Most of them are still kind of scratching their heads wondering, you know, where do I start with all of this? And so from your perspective, given the fact that basically that's what you guys do, you deal with lots of data and create interestingness and new things from that, where should some of these organizations kind of think about where they should start, but not just where they should start, but with the mindset of where they want to end up? Yes. I love this question so much because I don't think it's it's asked enough. Um, because to your point, a lot of times what's happening in these digital transformation projects is it's coming top down, right? There's a bucket of money that's been assigned that says, go do tr digital transformation. And they buy a bunch of shiny objects and wonder why they don't get the ROI. Right. Um, and I really think it's when you're going through this transformational process, because it truly is transformational, you have to have a strong foundation. And what I mean by that is just because you have data doesn't mean it's good data. Right. Doesn't mean you even need that data. You know, one thing we see a lot of uh, issues with is that companies will start collecting data for the sake of collecting data, not because they actually need or want it. And then their, you know, their cloud storage costs go through the roof and they're already losing ROI on the project before they even start. So one thing I would say is really get up close and personal to your data. Understand what you have, what you want, and what kind of condition is it in? Is it clean? Is it garbage, right? Because the famous saying, garbage in, garbage out, is still yeah. more true than ever. Um, and then once you kind of have a handle on where where am I at, right? What have I got? 
it's really getting very specific about what are the problems I want to solve and starting from a problem statement because by far the biggest issue I see is people buy a shiny object, right? So top comes down, says, here's $20 million for operational efficiency. Go find a tool to do that, right? So then they start this huge RFP process and they talk to all these vendors and they put in some $11 million enterprise-wide piece of software. And then they turn around and go, oh, we don't even have the data to feed this beast, <laughs> right? And so for me, it's it's really, you know, it's slowing them down, which a lot of people don't like to be pulled back because it's usually like run, run, run towards this shiny object. But it's saying, okay, what are the issues you want to solve, right? Let's look at the data you have before enacting any crazy program and see what we can find in it. Can we find really interesting insights between different operational processes? Can we find ways to optimize? Can we find ways of generating more revenue or adding to the bottom line in unique ways? And really thinking about how can I make meaningful impact quickly, utilizing as much of what I already have, right? Because the other really big part about these transformations that people don't talk about enough is the cultural aspect. Right. Right. So you're, I mean, these are huge changes to these companies. I mean, the analog to digital is a great analogy because it's going, you know, it's going from, you know, your grandma's analog phone to the iPhone you have in your phone now. And it's such a fundamental shift for the people who are doing the work, for the people who are understanding the work that you have to be mindful that behind all of this technology is still a bunch of people with souls, right? Like they still are humans. And so you need to be mindful of how, how anything you do is going to impact their life and their work. And then making sure you get quick wins early to get all of those people on board as quickly as possible. Great point on the the organizational change piece. I do see this as I mean, they're already going through a big enough, you know, kind of quote unquote culture shift in the, in the company as it is. I mean, even just think if like a maintenance technician, you're used to working on a bunch of analog stuff and it really didn't change much over time. I mean, and when it did change, there was, you know, training and all kinds of other things that came with it. And it wasn't, in most cases, it wasn't a very significant like landscape kind of shift, like a big avalanche of change. It was Mm -hmm. relatively minor in the, you know, grand scheme of things. Um, And now the level of change is enormous and it's so rapid and it's so regular so that I, I'm sure, you know, even just like a standard maintenance technician feels like they're nonstop change, nonstop training. How do they keep up? And then you throw, you know, AI or, you know, mm-hmm. ML or similar technologies into the mix and things just speed up and yeah. it gets even worse. Yeah. It, and it's like giving a whiplash. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, to your point of like that maintenance technician, right. That's a, that's a really good example because these foundational skilled tradesmen have so much tribal knowledge, right? And there's, there's so much that goes in. And like, I've told stories of being in substations when I was an engineer in a utility and I was with the foreman who said, we got to go. I'm like, what do you mean we got to go? And he goes, something bad's about to happen. We need to leave right now. And it was (laughs) something he heard and, and a a breaker trip and stuff got messed up. And it was, you know, it was a situation, but I would have never known that they don't teach you that. Right. It's, it's things that are really important to the business, but then you take them and they've done their job a certain way for 30, 40, 50 years. And all of a sudden you're putting this like smart tablet in their hand and VR goggles on their face and asking them to do their timesheets on their phone. And it's just, it's a lot of change all at once. And 
you know, one of the cautions I would say both from an operational level and from, from a technology level is we lovingly call it pilot hell. And if you pilot so much stuff with your employees, they start to not trust the process because if you don't get past pilot and you don't make it foundational to your business, you just leave them in a constant state of whiplash. And so I think being very, very mindful as a leadership team of what are you going to invest in? Are you willing to commit? Don't just pilot to pilot, pilot with an end game. Um, not only helps your organizations, it also helps your vendors because um, you're not stringing them along and making them waste resources that they could be deploying somewhere else. So yeah, I think it's it's just, it's so important to remember the humans behind it. Um, and clearly I get a little soapboxy about it. <laughs> but it is, I think it's important. I mean, we are racing down the technology path and and there's, there is, you know, lots of questions around, will AI be coming for my job? Am I going to be replaced by a robot? Uh, and yeah, there's, I'm not, we can touch on those questions, but, but that's another podcast or weeks worth of podcasts right there. Yeah. That's a lot of text message conversations in my phone is all about kind of the AI taking over the world conversation yeah. that's going on right now. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess we can, we can go there briefly, but I don't want to spend too much time on it, but the, uh, I mean, I understand that there's a lot of fear about Skynet, but right now we're not really there yet. I mean, we're really talking about, you know, LLMs, you know, ChatGPT, for example, it's a glorified autocorrect or, you know, glorified, you know, mm -hmm. spell checker. It's, mm -hmm. it's not yet at Skynet stage. Can we get there at some point? Mm, theory. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I think, you know, tools, tools are as powerful as you allow them to be and as as smart as you are using them, right? So like, for example, ChatGPT or Copy AI or Jasper or any of these, you know, LLMs that are out there, I use them every single day, right? It's, hey, I need a list of hotels in this city with contact information and like the best restaurant within two miles, right? So things that I would normally Google and have to take time doing, I'm using ChatGPT for, um, like structuring proposals, just things that were kind of mundane work. I think from an efficiencies perspective, you know, generative AI LLMs are incredible. I think bringing them into large organizations, which we can talk about some of the operational aspects we were chatting about before we pressed record, um, but deploying that kind of technology within an organization to drive efficiency within your workforce can be really amazing. We're looking at it in the educational space. We're looking at it in government logistics. We're looking at it um, in like operational data. So like in the utility space. And I think there's a lot of value there. But to your point, um, it's not Skynet yet. You know, ChatGPT is not going to take your job. I mean, maybe if you're a low-level blog writer, you know, <laughs> then yeah, maybe it might be time to start, you know, using ChatGPT and really amplifying your productivity to be able to meet more clients or something. But um, I think in our space, it's, yeah, it's not Skynet yet. I mean, I think the one thing I would say about it is you got to remember these are public LLMs if you're using them online. Um, and you know, you shouldn't be putting confidential project names and project details into chat GPT, um, yeah. cause that's a huge security risk. It is. And that was one of the areas I did want to touch on. Um, yeah. so let's bounce there. The, um, you know, a lot of companies want to use this technology to help them out. I mean, I've used it, uh, and I've had it summarize some things. It's confidently wrong in a lot of ways. <laughs> you definitely need to go back and, uh, proofread what it gives you. Uh, but it does come up with some pretty interesting things, especially when you give it something and it needs to be summarized, for example. Yeah. Uh, it does a good job at stuff like that. Um, but it, it is often confidently wrong. And with stuff like um, if I wanted to help me with a project, 
like you said, don't put sensitive project names or things like that in there. Um, that then, you know, it's pretty easy to basically leak sensitive company information. Right. Uh, so I've seen like um, Samsung and a few others have expressly forbid using it for work purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So if that's the case, I mean, and I can definitely see why, and I, I don't think that that's an unrealistic ask. So is there going to be something like a, like a FedRAMP or SOC 2 version of uh, <laughs> ChatGPT where you can use something like this externally? Because, um, you know, you've seen what these things take in terms of resources just to yeah. create. So you, I can't just go like make my own and host it in my own company on, on premise, for example, can I? Right. I mean, you could. I mean, in theory, right? Anything's possible if you got deep enough pockets. Um I did see, and I'm I'm not going to be an expert on this, and this is like a blog in my inbox, but I saw some AWS movement where they're going to be opening up um, some interesting generative AI within the AWS ecosystem, which that could be really interesting um, if they're able to lock down different parts of the data to be used in the model or not. Um, so it is more secure. So I would definitely look into that. It's on my list of things to research when I can't sleep at night. Um but I think if you're if you're a large enough organization, you you could build it in house, um, or you could leverage pieces of other technology and just apply it to what you have. And I think that's probably what we're going to see a lot of, is you know core foundational tech being developed and core algorithms and stuff, um, and then bringing that in and and customizing it to your own unique situation in order to your point keep it secure, um, because when you've got everybody from age six to 66 asking chat gpt you know all the different questions they ask um it becomes kind of a free-for-all that's a little bit scary yeah yeah i'm even i'm just as you're talking i'm just thinking about stuff like uh specialized companies that just work with these types of technologies or like an energy sector one or a infrastructure one or law enforcement one you know that, that caters to that and can actually I guess, offer more compartmentalization or security that way as well. Yeah. Or if you think about like energy data is a good one, right? So if you thought about if the DOE made one, right. And it was something that was locked down from a perspective of, you know, you had to have secure logins and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, but it allowed just organization of all the DOE data. Cause you think about it, we look at it all the time. You download the reports, you scan the reports, you find the data, like it's hours of, of hunting for yeah. the information you want. Um, and being able to have just a, a little chat bot and say, hey, you know, what was the solar penetration in Illinois in 2012? <laughs> and having it bring back a cited report and maybe even a contact at the utility to talk to, you know, like those kinds yeah. of things, I think will really, I think it'll speed up, not just like efficiency and productivity, but it'll really speed up innovation because it's giving you, it's giving you the information you need when you need it. It is. Yeah. And I'm even, I'm, I'm looking forward to the time it can actually spit out things like charts and graphs and other data based on yes. what it's got, you know, cause I mean, yes. if, if I feed it into an Excel sheet and give me the output. Yeah, <laughs> so, totally. <laughs> why can't it do that yet? Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, it's all coming. I think it is. And, but that's the part about the, you know, the Skynet piece. It's like um, the old story of uh, you ask, you know, the AI to go make me a dinner reservation and it's, you know, it, it you know, does everything to, you know, to guarantee that you get that dinner reservation up to and including killing the person that has the existing reservation, <laughs> yes. you know, that kind of thing. So I, I just, I just don't see that, you know, coming anytime soon. Yeah. And I do think we've got a long way to go in terms of, um, there's a lot of, a lot of discussion about regulating AI and 
speaking as a former regulator, yes, I think that's a very bad idea right now. Um, yeah. We already have things like, um, basically, I think if we regulated anything, it should be regulating them on how they're trained and transparency in terms of you know what they do to, to to fix any issues that are discovered in terms of biases or or other maybe harmful things that may come from it. I think that's about as far as we should go, but we didn't even know how to regulate the internet for like 20 years. Right. Know? And it right. was like world changing, transformational. Yes. Uh, so I, you know, I think, I think we should, you know, give it some chance to let it, you know, flex and figure out what it needs to do. And then we'll start figuring it out. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. We use that analogy a lot of kind of the invention of the internet was, you know, kind of step one and now going into AI, it's really step two. Um, and it, it is like to that. I mean, I'm going to say this word a thousand times, but it is so transformational. And I think trying to your point, like trying to regulate it now, you're regulating things that don't even exist yet. Yeah. Um, and as much as some regulation is very important, um, I am definitely of the belief that over-regulating is even more harmful than not having the regulation in, in, in place. Right. Um, right. So yeah, we I need think... to let the innovation happen. I agree. It's kind of like cooking. You know, you can always add, but you can't take away. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Or it's very painful to take away. <laughs> right. Right. It's really difficult. Yeah. And it, often you don't want to start over. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, um, since most of, um, in my world, at least, that's where most of my questions come from is the industrial space. Mm-hmm. Um, your, your company has done a fair bit of work in this area. And I, I see a lot of tracks, like when these companies start down this path, as we mentioned, they start with things like kind of, um, uh, operational efficiencies. They look for mm-hmm. ways to make the system or, you know, the operation itself more efficient, whether it's the machines in the operation, uh, like less downtime, faster, like anomaly detection, uh, and up to including things like, you know, resource, human resource optimization around maintenance windows and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, what are some of the, like, what are some of the things that I, that are like not what, what are some of the subtle things that also come out of this or like maybe tier two or secondary output or byproduct? What are some of the more interesting things mm. other than those like, you know, bumper sticker, immediate, you know, sell points? Yeah, I love that. So there's uh, a project we did for a rail company in Europe that I really like because it was in the name of operational efficiency, right? It utilized computer vision, um, so kind of like that alternate reality, virtual reality, you know, goggles situation. It had a bunch of wearables. Um, and basically the goal was to optimize the loading of, of rail cars and their maintenance um, and inspection process. So like I can I can link to a video if you have show notes, but, you know, the worker would go up to the rail car and through their goggles, they look at the nameplate. It pulls up the information on the train car, says what's inside of it, what needs to go inside of it, all these things. Um, and what was really interesting about it was it wasn't just optimizing the maintenance program. It was allowing them to get direct feedback from home office, right? It wasn't just what should we put in this car and how much, but it's what should we load first and how in order to make it as efficient as possible from a space containment standpoint. Um, So it was like, it was sort of like, okay, here's the goal, but how do we go one step further? And I think that's where all of this extra data gets really interesting right? Because like, if you go to teams, okay, I need to build a team around this data science project, which we do all the time, right? I need two data scientists, a machine learning engineer, and a business analyst. Great. That's the problem I'm solving is I need this team. The next step is what is the deep layer of technical skills that they have and how can we mesh those together in order to make an optimized team? 
So it's really kind of the and then that I think becomes really important. And that's how these organizations are really going to be able to differentiate themselves. Um, because the one thing technology does do is it starts to create this like kind of even playing field, right? It's how does how does one utility differentiate itself from another or one industrial complex go from another? It's how quickly are you adapting, utilizing, and benefiting from the tools at your disposal? And that's, you know, that's where we get really excited to come in and brainstorm and find these ways to get really creative, like the rail cars of, okay, let's not just pack them right. Let's pack them so efficiently and lay over these other operational processes where we're getting so much bang for your buck. It's a no brainer to keep doing technology implementations. Yeah. I'm even thinking of like where the train's going to stop first and what needs to come off at that destination. Exactly. The next yep. one. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. um some of these case studies get, you know, just super interesting. Um, like we do a lot of sport tech, which I realize is very outside your world, but that's just a, this is a very cool story yeah. is um, and this is like a public, a public use case. So I can say names and stuff, but um, Bristol city football club. So soccer for us Americans, um, they, they utilized some of our AI technology through a platform called Sozo Health. And what it does is we have a doctor who's behind it and we've developed algorithms that use different ultrasound technology and different medical tests. And it builds like the digital twin of the like muscular skeletal system. I can never say that right. The muscles of the guy, right? And they're measuring how strong they are in different aspects in order to say, okay, if you keep training like this, you know, you're this much more likely to pull your Achilles tendon. And there was an athlete who, who was basically benched right at the kind of the end of his career because of performance, um, went through this process, got this AI powered personal training program that's overseen by physicians, everything, but the AI builds it and says, Hey, this is how you should train. This is how you can optimize. This is where you can improve your game. He starts again. Wow. It's, it's insane. And you think about the power of that in healthcare, um, becomes just super interesting. Like we're doing projects around the epigenetic age of humans. And so your epigenetic age is like, how old is your body? Not in like physical years, but in years of like how much wear and tear. Yeah. Like health years. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Like health years. And you know, it's been proven you could reverse that. Right. But how? You know, the data behind that and technology behind that is fascinating. Um, so I think, you know, from like a trend perspective, what I'm really watching is is the health space for sure. And then the operational space and especially supply chain in the operational space. I think those are the two areas that are going to be like really impactful to like a lot of the population. Yeah, I, I'm also expecting and I'm seeing a little bit of it, but more uh, my expectation is I'll see more of it in areas like um uh, ADMS or the um, yeah. kind of automated distribution space where you're balancing kind of these inverter-based resources, of course, your transmission system, and, and then, then the distribution system that sits in the middle, uh, because all of those things are so dynamic. The transmission system is not as dynamic, but it's it's kind of what you use to, to stabilize things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you've got, you know, car hits pole, or you've got, you know, a wave of heat or a cloud comes over, and then you've got other issues with the, you know, whether it's solar or wind or battery storage or whatever you might have in the inverter-based side. But that that complex mix of trying to balance now what, you know, we we're pretty good at balancing big transmission systems. We're now just learning how to balance these really, really complex distribution systems with all the things that live inside them now. So yeah. I can see where that would be really useful for you know, like AI to help with uh, to make some of those kind of micro decisions and 
you know, localize things like outages or repair windows or other things to just the smallest possible thing so that you don't end up with bigger cascades, you know, and bigger issues to like islanding, for example, and kind of bigger issues to work around with outages. Yeah, I could not agree more. Um, you're actually preaching to a mega nerd on that. So <laughs> like 10 years ago, I think it was now when I was an engineer um, at San Diego Gas and Electric, we wrote we wrote or we got a patent on an algorithm that did distribution load management at the distribution transformer level. Nice. Um, and it was really ahead of its time, right? Because people, you know, distribution transformers were still a commodity. It was, you know, if it's, if there's flickering lights or whatever, just upgrade it, it'll be fine. <laughs> um, and it got to the point where we were starting to see the influx of electric vehicles and DERs and like all the things that you're saying, you know, at the baby's baby scale. And our VP at the time, Dave Geyer, who's a brilliant man, um, he looked at us and he said, he drew, he, I still have the piece of paper, actually. He drew a box that was the transformer and he said, we need to do economic dispatch here because we need to figure out how to make this work. Yeah. And we did. Um, and so it's, you know, that one's now very outdated um, and, and was used a little bit, but now um, we're actually looking at how do we take that a step further and put the technology that's disposable to us now into something like that. Um, and create this smart transformer ecosystem at the distribution transformer level, because to your point, you know, that is the breaking point, you know, EPRI published it, you know, it was pretty well known five, six, seven, eight years ago that the distribution transformer will be the failure point yeah. when you start putting in all this stuff. Um, and it's still, it's still treated as a stepchild asset and, you know, understanding that we can't roll trucks to every single one. That's impossible. Like it's just not going to happen. So how do we protect what we have? The answer is, it's software, right? It's software and it's it's remote control and it's decentralizing to the point where you can trust what's on your system to make decisions to protect, you know, your people and your assets. Right. And at least giving it enough authority or autonomy to do localized decision-making, you know, whether it's not like yes. maybe the entire distribution system, but it can take X number of meters or X number of, of you know, whether it's transformers or whatever device level you want to call it. But yeah, and you know those transformers don't grow on trees, so exactly. we need to manage them as as best we can. And and uh, they're running into situations that they were never really designed for ever. ever. Uh, and we're putting them <laughs> under those conditions, so it gives us a lot more capacity. And this is one of the examples I've used around the possibility of uh, basically taking your operational data because as we talked, you're going to have a lot more of it coming up, or if you don't already, and mining that for things like. Um, you, maybe you've got some transformers failing in, in in certain areas before their expected window. And, you know, you can probably guess why, but, you know, you want to send this back to the transformer manufacturer so they can have that data, but they only get like the failed transformer. They don't really get all that rich context around what caused it to go into that state. Okay. And that's where I think the possibility of uh, using analytical companies to with AI or, you know, something something like this to take your operational data and create data products that you could then maybe sell back to the transformer manufacturer or you know other areas of your supply chain so that you can create kind of revenue products out of your operational data as well. Yeah, I I love this conversation because I think it's it's forcing us to think differently. I think the utility space especially as a whole is under a very interesting shift right now. Mm -hmm. Um just from a political and financial kind of contract mechanisms and how they make money and all of that stuff is really, really, really interesting. And to your point, they're having to figure out ways to create different revenue streams uh, besides just spinning meters or now blinking meters. Yeah. Um, and 
the data they're sitting on is so valuable. And I think there's a there's a tinge that happens when people say data monetization or selling data back because they think of like Facebook selling your data to Amazon, right? right. It's icky. I don't want my information going there. But if you think about operational data, like your your transformer example is spot on, right? If I'm an ABB client, let's say, and I'm buying, you know, hundreds of thousands of transformers over the years, not just the data on the ones that failed, but the data on the ones that survived, right? right. How long right. is the actual life? What temperatures were they in? How many times did they see a fault? You know, all of that stuff is so, so valuable. And I can speak from someone who used to work for one of the major vendors. We don't get that data. Right. Right. We're running off test chamber data. Yeah. And if you could get the utility to talk to you, it was gold. So I think the opportunity for coming together and sharing that data is immense. Um, I think there will be cultural walls we have to break down in order to make it happen. But if I had a magic wand, you know, I would have an industry-wide database that was accessible to the vendors, to the utilities, to globally optimize what we're doing. Because if we're really going to push for electrification and all of this craziness onto the grid at this rapid pace, the grid can't keep up. So we're yeah. going to have to get really creative and do things in ways we've never done before in order to keep the lights on. Well, I think that's a fantastic idea. And I hope my friends at DOE are listening and they do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Altruistic is here to help. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but I I think that that's something that, I mean, it's it's not, I mean, customer data, you know, really all bets are off. That's not going to be touchable by the utility, especially in most states or maybe some places where they may have some flexibility, maybe, you know, anonymization or some way to use customer data. But I mean, this is completely aside from customer data. This is the operational data of your power system. Right. Yes. It's, it's not the, you know, the other side of the meter or at the meter, even it's your, you know, meter to all of the stuff that you own as a utility, for example. So I'm hoping we can get over some of those stigmas and, and we can have some real meaningful conversations because there are a lot of utilities. I'm thinking specifically like municipalities mm -hmm. that just do not have the funds to operate at the same pace as many of the others. And they've got, you know, real constraints. I mean, no one wants to be the commissioner that raised the rates and got voted out the next time. So right. they've they've got some just these kind of standard challenges to why they are in the state that they're in. But um, I, th I think that there's some options there. I mean, my my grand vision, right, or my, my pie in the sky view basically is that there will be a point in time where utilities could make as much or more off of their operational data as they do from, you know, blinky meters. Right. I agree. And I think, you know, to the security standpoint, you know, there's tools to get around that. Like we have a data anonymization tool. We have a data synthesization tool, right? And those are things we use when it's, you know, projects for the NIH or projects, you know, for different various parts right. of the government or sensitive data is you don't have to give over your raw data. There's ways around that, yeah. right? Um, and I think that's the other piece that people don't realize because again, when we're in these very traditional environments, you know, the way people think is ingrained and it's not a bad thing. It's just, we have to understand the ecosystem we're walking into um, and not try to, again, give them whiplash, right? It's yeah. okay, no, your customer data is safe. We're not even going into that database, right? We're going to see your asset data over here and we're going to anonymize it and we're going to synthesize it. So it's not even your data anymore. <laughs> and yeah. so it's, um, yeah, it's a process, but I think I, I tell people all the time, the energy space is so poised for incredible innovation because there is so much data that is not being used and so much room for efficiencies and improvement um, that it's my favorite happy hour conversation. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that's awesome. I know I, I have people are probably tired of hearing me talk about it. I, I talk about it too many happy hours as well. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So what um, the last piece I want to talk about is uh, kind of the the generative AI and LLM. This, you know, chat GPT, this is obviously the new thing. Everybody is all over this. If an organization wanted to try to use this to their advantage today, what yeah. would be some, you know, safe, secure ways to do this? Uh, that would give them some benefit. And I'm speaking, you know, thinking traditionally some, some like an industrial customer, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think the first thing is to make sure you have a guide on your path. Right. Um, I think the the technology is shifting and moving so quickly that you really do need that pilot. Um, because if you try to do it alone and kind of figure it out as you go, there's so many booby traps Um that you could, that you could put yourself into that it's going to be way more painful to get out of. Um, so I would just make that recommendation of, of find an expert and, and trust them. Um, and then I would say from a more practical standpoint is, you know, we have like a very kind of clear method that we bring people into the space of Gen AI. And that always starts with, with interviews, um, and really understanding, you know, what's the journey that you're looking for, for your employee, for your customer, for your client, whatever you're trying to build, right of what are you trying to accomplish through this, understanding the strategic KPIs that would be put in place for kind of this final build out, and then doing the research behind that. So, you know, then we'll take that information and say, okay, what tools are out there? What models are out there? How secure does it need to be? What kind of data are you putting into it? What kind of user experience do you want, right? And really tailoring the entire project back to those initial stakeholders Instead of, again, trying to force a square peg into a round hole of saying, oh, we'll just use ChatGPT. Well, ChatGPT might not be right for you, right? It's it's only got 10% of the internet. And yeah, that's a ton of information, but it's not the industrial complex information you need, right? Right. So I think it's it's really starting with that strategy kind of consultative moment in the front to understand wh- like which direction your path is in and then start walking forward. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I think in a lot of cases, they're just kind of rushing out to try to see what it'll do for them. And in yeah. most cases, unless they kind of bring that back and vet it with engineers and internal people, they're going to get a lot of wrong information from what I've seen. Yes. Yes. And it's, um, you know, and it's hard because I, I definitely see both sides of the coin, right? Where, okay, use something out of the box because it's faster. We can move faster. It's It's been tested, whatever. And then, you know, going bespoke is it's expensive, it's slow, um, but really understanding kind of, you know, what kind of business are you in? What kind of data do you have? What are the goals you're trying to achieve? Like asking those foundational questions. And I feel like I'm just beating a dead horse here, but it's so important to really understand where you are and where you want to be before you start moving, because changing directions halfway through will always be more painful and more expensive um, than getting it right the first time. All right. I think that's all I've got. I love it. What do you think? Anything else you want to add? I mean, I would say if you have an idea about a clever way to use the data within your organization, don't be afraid to say it. And I think that's something that organizations don't tap into enough is you've got a lot of unicorn brain power sitting on your payroll already that you don't necessarily know about and 
I think that's the magic that will really transform companies quickly is those who are willing to kind of open their eyes to their people more and understand their strengths and optimize how they're using their best asset. Um, and I will, I will shamelessly brag a little bit about a tool we built because I, I just think it's very interesting. Um, we worked alongside Harvard and built, we call it the master knowledge assessment, um, but it's for data professionals and it's anything from kind of business analyst up through, you know, AI, machine learning engineer. And it's a foundational skills competencies test for these hard skills around advanced technology. And what it does is it shows you, you know, you might have a business analyst who's a great business analyst, you know, she's been there five years, whatever, but you have no idea that she spends her nights on YouTube teaching herself how to be a data scientist. And so she takes this test and you're like, oh my, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I'm paying these guys over here $150,000 a year yeah. to do this job and they're okay. I'm paying you 60 and you're brilliant. Yeah. And so that has been really interesting. We've deployed it with Harvard Business School, um, which showed some really interesting biases that were coming out um, in like in resume reading and it was nobody's fault, right? Um, but being able to level the playing field on the talent behind all of this technology is something that, you know, I personally have become very passionate about, but as a company, we're very passionate about is really democratizing the access to this meaningful work. Because when you start talking about kind of the Skynet fear of is AI going to take my job? Well, it, it might, right? There might be certain repeatable tasks that they're having humans do that we don't necessarily need to in the future. But the way to protect yourself against that is to get the skills for the even higher paying jobs um, that will be in the future. And so um, we're working with a, I don't know if I can say it yet, but I'll just say we're working with a large country's government um, to test immigrants as they come in on this platform so that that government can help place them in, jo in meaningful jobs and add to their technology workforce. And oh, so it's, it's really cool. It's very cool. Um, you know, and for an organization, you think about like skill gap analysis and what am I going to build? You know, I want to do this AI project. How much bench do I have, right? Of the skills I need to get there. Do I need to go higher or do I have a whole group of people that are sitting doing other things? And so I think the talent conversation is really, really important. Um, and it's, it goes alongside a lot of the other operational goals. But again, right, the business doesn't function without the humans. So I think really as as people look at what am I going to invest in with technology um, is always going back and understanding the human element of it, no matter kind of what sort of project it is. No, I love that. And that's the part that, I mean, it's still going to take out this, it, as you say, it, it takes the humans. It still does. And mm -hmm. that's part of the... Um, the automation paradox that I've always been, I've been, I don't know, screaming into the wind about for the last 10 or 15 years is the more we automate, the more crucial the human action becomes, right? Because yes. that one human action can have such a cascading downstream effect on so many things. So right. it, it doesn't remove the human or the responsibility of the human. It just concentrates it to a, a higher degree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and you think about your world, like in the security space, it's, it becomes even more important, yeah. right? Because it's, you get lazy if everything's automated. I mean, I'm just as guilty if like, I, I was laughing that I didn't know if my husband took my son's swim shorts to daycare because it's our lives are automatically just, Oh, it beeped. It's time to go to school. Okay. Let's go out the door. <laughs> yep. You know, if Siri doesn't remind me get your kid's swim trunks, I'm not doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, so it's, and yeah, it's that. And that's the part is we automate more. We, there's still this question of manual and that's the, the flip side of the conversation that I don't want to leave out is things like the, 
um, the consequence-based engineering and and all those things that are designing kind of those analog safeguards into all of this automation that we're adding on top. I think those two have to go hand in hand. And, and then you had the third leg of that stool is the humans doing all the, the right. things in the middle. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I think that's the other, and not to like keep going on it, but I think, you know, that's the other really cool part about some of this AI tech is not just optimizing stuff, which I think is amazing, right? We're going to make huge innovation there, but it's also finding the really interesting moments for risk mitigation and saying yes. hey this data is getting a little weird yeah like you might want to go look at this which would have never been visible to the naked eye right right so i and think we have huge opportunity on that side as well i think so too and it's like the the ability for ai to spot cancer at its really early stages we'll yes the same thing with other other data sets and, and similar approaches yeah yeah I would say just as a um, a fun read, if you are if you like technology, um, Tony Robbins' latest book, I think it's called Life Force. Um, I think that's what it's called. But he's he has developed a um, kind of basically an AI powered health clinic kind of situation, hmm. um, and they leverage a lot of cutting edge technology. And in his book, they talk about just to that point of different tests that are preventative and are looking for you know, key signals using AI algorithms to check, you know, your heart or cancer risk and different things instead of waiting until you're in the ER, right? You're getting this stuff done way up front. Unfortunately, a lot of this is only available to like very affluent people at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, our health system will understand that it's a lot cheaper to catch it early and, um, and deploy some of this, you know, upfront expensive technology to save costs on the back end. But right. yeah, it's a great, it's a great, fascinating read. Um, if you're interested in AI and want to learn more about, you know, ways that could be very personal, uh, that it could help you, um, I would highly recommend it. Um, yeah, cool. I'll include that in the show notes. That's the thing that this can do in a lot of cases is it can look at a bunch of things that would be seemingly disconnected and be able to create, you know, patterns out of that, that most humans can't wrap their head around. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's, that's one of the funnest conversations is, is yeah. the interesting insights it pulls that you had no idea that, you know, this type of insulator happens to fail more when it's in a, you know, a wood cross arm that's over the age of whatever, you know, like these yes. weird, just weird things that you find yes. um, are just are fascinating and they can have huge impact. Yeah. No, that's one of my favorite parts about it. Very Agreed. cool. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for this conversation. I know we could, Absolutely. we could nerd out all, all, all day I long know. on these things because um, they're all, all of this is super interesting to me. And as, as I've said many times, it's time to strap on the jetpack and just go for the ride. Let's yes. see where this takes us. I love it. And if if you are listening right now and you want to have a nerdy conversation or you have questions about it, I could literally talk about this so I'm blue in the face. Um, find me <laughs> on LinkedIn. Um, but I just, Patrick, thank you so much for having me. I, I do love this conversation. I think it's an important one. Um, and I can't wait to see where where the market goes. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on. And I'm sure uh, we'll, we'll have many more conversations like this again. <laughs> Most definitely. Thanks. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ampere Industrial Security Critical Assets Podcast. You can find us on all your favorite podcast sources. So please like, subscribe, and share with your colleagues. Check out our other content, such as blogs, news, and more at AmpereSec.com. That's A-M-P-E-R-E-S-E-C.com. Ampere Industrial Security, securing your world.